Welcome to the Dublin Festival of History podcast, brought to you by Dublin City Council. In this episode from the 2019 festival, best-selling historian Young Chang talks about the remarkable story of three sisters who helped shape the history of 20th century China in Big Sister, Little Sister, Red Sister. The moderator is historian Dr Isabel Jackson and the episode was recorded at Printworks Dublin Castle on the 20th of October 2019. Good evening. It's wonderful to see so many people, although not at all surprising. It's genuinely an honour for me um, to be speaking to our um, uh, esteemed speaker this evening, um, perhaps the most influential writer of Chinese history working today. If people have read just one book of Chinese about China, um, it will probably be Wild Swans. Um, the uh, um, absolute publishing phenomenon that uh, sold over 13 million copies. Um, it's been published in many languages around the world. Um, and since its publication, <coughs> Yung Chang has made a name for herself as a historian of um, modern China and also a fine biographer of Mao Zedong and of the Empress Dowager Sushi. Um, if you haven't yet read those books, I strongly recommend um, that you do. But today we are discussing her latest book. Um, this was a um, copy I had a sneak preview of. Um, Big Sister, Little Sister, Red Sister. Three Women at the Heart of 20th Century China. Um, it is hot off the press. It was just released a few days ago. Um, and it provides a masterful account of modern Chinese history as revealed through the lives of three remarkable sisters, uh, the Song sisters, Ailing, Meiling, and Qingling. Um, but Yung Chang herself is originally from Sichuan in southwest China. Um, she moved to the UK in 1978 and she lives in London. So we are thrilled to welcome her back to Dublin today. And with no further ado, please take the podium. And I look forward to learning from you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Thank you very much. Very kind. Okay. Thank you. <coughs> Thank you very much. I'm very pleased to be to be here again. Um, I, I think before I started talking about uh, the three sisters, um, um, let me speak say a few words about how I came to write this book. Um, I loved writing when I was a child, but when I was growing up in China in the 1950s and the 60s and the 70s, it was impossible even to dream of being a writer because nearly all writers were condemned, sent to the gulag, driven to suicide, some were even executed. Now, even writing for oneself was dangerous. I wrote my first poem on my 16th birthday in 1968 in the Cultural Revolution. And I was in bed, lying in bed, you know, polishing my poem when I heard the door banging. The Red Guards had come to raid our flat. And if my poem was discovered, uh, I would be in trouble and my family would be in trouble. So I had to quickly rush to the bathroom to tear up my poem and flush it down the toilet. And that ended my first venture in writing. But the desire to write never left me. And in the following years, 
I was exiled to the edge of the Himalayas and worked as a peasant and as a barefoot doctor. Um, a barefoot doctor is a doctor without any training who worked only for the peasants. Um, <clears throat> and then I became a steel worker and then electrician. Uh, when I was spreading manure in the paddy fields, when I was checking electricity supplies on top of the electricity poles, I was always writing in my head with an invisible pen, but I couldn't put pen to paper. And then in 1976, Mao died. And in 1978, um, I mean, China began to change, and I became one of the first group of 14 people to go and study in Britain. Then I could write them. But at that moment, my, the desire to write left me because I had come to a world which was like a mass. Everything was new. Um, I just wanted to spend every minute absorbing the new, the new atmosphere, the new world. And I was the first to do many things. One of the things I was the first to do was to go into an English pub um, because the Chinese... The, Chinese translation for pub is jiu ba, which suggested somewhere indecent with nude women gyrating. <laughs> and of course, I was torn with curiosity. So one day I sneaked out of the college, I darted across the road, I pushed the door of the pub open, and of course, I saw nothing of the kind, only some men sitting there drinking beer, and I was rather disappointed, <laughs> of course. And, and, and so I, I didn't write for 10 years. And in 1988, my mother came to London to stay with me. For the first time, she told me the stories of her life, um, the story of my grandmother, her relationship with my father. And once my mother started, she couldn't stop. She stayed with me for six months and she talked every day. By the time she left London, she had left me 60 hours of tape recordings. And that, that's how I came to write Wild Swans. And after Wild Swans was finished, I wrote a biography of um, Mao and a biography of the Empress Dowager Tsushi. And this is my next biography. Um, and uh, so I will now use this. I mean, some side, that's the cover of the book. Um, red sister, little sister, uh, big sister, little sister, red sister, three women at the heart of 20th century China. Their mother was, the mother came from an extraordinary family. She was an extraordinary woman and she came from the extraordinary family. Her family was China's oldest Christians. And a district in Shanghai is named after her family. And her ancestors, her most illustrious ancestors, um, was the first, one of the first, at least one of the first, most distinguished uh, Catholic um, in the seven, early 17th century or late in the 16th century. And um, standing on both sides of her is Eileen, big sister, and the red sister, Mailing. And this is their father, Charlie Song. Charlie 
went to America in 1878 as an unskilled worker, a sort of a coolie, but he ran away and ended up in the in American South, and he became the first Chinese person to be converted to, uh, to Methodism. So he was with the Southern Methodists for seven years and was trained there, and then he came went back to China as a preacher. And later he became a businessman and made a lot of money. And with this money, what he most wanted to do was to give his children an American education. And so he's, he's got three daughters and three sons, and all the three girls, as well as the three boys, went to America. Now, the eldest daughter, Eileen went to America in 1904 when she was 14. Um, and she was the first Chinese, first person from China to go to, 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 to graduate, to study in America. Um, and the, this is the second daughter, red sister, Qingling. She and the little sister Mei-Ling followed, and she was 14 at the time when she went to America, and little sister Mei-Ling was only nine. And what was also extraordinary to me was that their parents sent their girls to America on their own without a, a adult family members there looking after them. And such was Charlie's faith in American society and um, in the Methodist community. And Qingling, after her studies, she came back and uh, fell passionately in love with Sun Yat-sen. Sun Yat-sen is known as the father of China. He was the first person to promote republicanism. So he was the first republican in China. Um, and Qingling was madly in love with him. Her parents were against the marriage because Sun Yat-sen was married with a wife and a, a concubine, um, three children um, and uh, various uh, consorts. Uh, he was a womanizer. <coughs> and uh, and uh, he was twice uh, her more than twice her age. And so the parents locked Qingling in her bedroom, but she climbed out of the window and boarded a ship to Japan to marry Sun Yat-sen. But he, I mean, she was passionately in love with him. She wanted to die to sacrifice herself for him, and she was terribly let down. In 1922, the couple were surrounded by Sun Yat-sen's enemies. She, Qingling, volunteered to stay behind to cover her husband's escape. So he fled, but what she didn't know was after he arrived safety, he still didn't want his wife to leave. He wanted her as a bait to draw, to intensify enemy attacks so he could launch a, a, a counterattack and uh, for his own goals, his political goals, which actually was to be the president of Republican China. And um, 
she had to um, f- fly. She nearly, she had to flee. She nearly died. She suffered a miscarriage and was never able to have children, which was devastating for her because she loved the children. Uh, and um, she decided not to divorce her husband, but to do a, do deals with him. The deal she asked him was to allow her to be a public figure in her own right. And before she was always tucked away at the back and never appeared in public. Um, now, she, for the first time, she appeared in public. And here is um, um, Qingling standing next to Sun Yat-sen on the stage uh, on the opening ceremony of the Wang Po Military Academy. To fulfill his goal, Sun Yat-sen brought in the Russians. The the Soviet Russians were the only people who were prepared to support him, to fund him, to arm him, to fund this military academy for him, to help him overthrow the Beijing government, to help him come to power. And uh, next to Sun Yat-sen, is Chiang Kai-shek, Sun Yat-sen's successor and head of his army. Now, this this picture was taken in 1927. It's probably the last picture of the three sisters genuinely happy together. And Qingling, red sister in the dark Chongsan, Became, had become a red sister. She came under the influence of Soviet agents and she became a committed Leninist, a communist. And the two sisters uh, in colorful Chongsans uh, were passionately anti-communist. And Meiling, little sister, then married Chiang Kai-shek, Sun Yat-sen's Mm, uh, Sun Yat-sen's successor. And that year, 1927, Chiang Kai-shek broke from the communists and um, cut the, the control of the Russians on his nationalist party. And so the the three sisters were not physical, physically actually were torn apart by these two antagonistic political camps, the nationalists and the communists. And the Chiang Kai-sheks on their honeymoon, their marriage went up and down um, as well as the red sister's marriage. Little sister just wasn't prepared for the world of Chiang Kai-shek. Chiang Kai-shek had risen, uh, had started his political career as an assassin. He assassinated Sun Yat-sen's major political rival, and that's how he caught Sun Yat-sen's eye and was made Sun Yat-sen's head, head of his army and later his successor. And Mei-ling sank into a depression which lasted seven years. And one reason was that um, Chiang Kai-shek himself was also pursued by assassins. And some got into their bedroom near their marital bed. So as a result, she suffered a miscarriage and, and was left childless. And Chiang Kai-shek loved his wife and wanted to pull her out of her depression. So in 1932, on her birthday, he gave her a birthday present, a necklace. 
but as you can see, it's no ordinary necklace. It encircled a whole mountain. And um, the jewel of the necklace is this, it's a beautiful villa with green-blue tiles which sparkle in the sun, looking like a real jewel. And the chains of the pendant um, are French pine trees, which he had imported. And these French pine trees color in the autumn in a different way from the local trees, so they stand out. And of course, you can only see it with a private plane, which he could, he could show his wife, but not everybody else. So this, this jewel itself was hidden until fairly recently, you know, many, many, many decades later, when the film crew um, apparently by accident spotted this and people did research in the archives and, um, and found this, discovered the story. And um, big sister, Eileen was the person who brought the Chang's together. And she, through this connection, she made herself one of the richest women in China. <clears throat> she was also very brilliant um, financially as well as politically. And her husband, one thing she did was to make her husband, H.H. Kong, Chiang Kai-shek's prime minister and the finance minister. So a lot of Chiang Kai-shek's financial decisions were actually made by these in-laws together. <clears throat> Meanwhile, red sister Qingling went into exile in Russia. This is um, red sister um, in the Caucasus in 1927. The man next to her is called the Deng Yanda, um, who is a brilliant man, very charismatic, with leadership qualities. Stalin had asked him to chair the Chinese Communist Party, but he turned down Stalin because he did not believe in communism. And instead, he formed a third party as an alternative to the nationalists and the communists. And so Chiang Kai-shek hated him because he was a serious threat. So Chiang Kai-shek had him murdered in 1931. But he was the person that Red Sister fell in love with when, when they were in exile in Moscow, in Russia, and then in Berlin. So she hated Chiang Kai-shek and devoted, basically devoted her life to help Mao beat Chiang Kai-shek, I mean, even at the cost of ruining her whole family and the lives of her two sisters. And the sisters were actually very close emotionally. Now, the war against Japan in 1937 brought the sisters back together in a united front because the communists and the nationalists were in a united front. And so little sister Mei Ling at this time was China's first lady and she did her duties diligently. And this was her visiting wounded soldiers. <clears throat> she made a triumphant tour of America in 1943 and addressed Congress, Joint Houses of Congress. A standing ovation for her address lasted five minutes. <clears throat> and this is her 
in at Hollywood, at the Hollywood Bowl, uh, at a rally to welcome her, tended by 30,000 people. And that's her with flowers in her hands. And on her right is her nephew, David, big sister's son. And to this side, on the edge to this side, is Jeanette, her niece, daughter of big sister Eileen. Big sister Eileen had four children. She basically gave these two to Mailing to fill the gap left by her childlessness. So they, these two became closer to Mailing than to their own mother. And Jeanette was gay. And unusual for 1940s, she didn't try to hide it. She flaunted it. She only wore men's clothes and a men's haircut. So in America, President Roosevelt called her my boy. <laughs> and uh, this was a mailing with Chiang Kai-shek at the Cairo conference in 1943 with uh, President Roosevelt and Winston Churchill. And the three sisters together in, um, with Chiang Kai-shek in Chiang Kai-shek's wartime capital, Chongqing. And you may notice that she stood apart from the other three. And in fact, she, was always, um, she always stood apart from Chiang Kai-shek and never smiled, made a point of, um, of looking, you know, not smiling. Oh, those are the three brothers, uh, so we'll s skip them, probably. Yes, yes. Oh, they also quite interesting, but anyway. <clears throat> Sorry. The, this is um, Tiananmen after the victory against Japan. Chiang Kai-shek's portrait is where very near Mao's face is today. <clears throat> Um, a, a civil war followed the victory against Japan, and Chiang Kai-shek was defeated by the communists and was driven out, out of the mainland to Taiwan. This was him bidding goodbye to his mother's tomb. The man next to him with a hat is his son, his only blood son, his son Qingguo, Qingguo was held hostage in Russia by Stalin for 13 years, 12, <clears throat> 12 years. Um, and um, Chiang Kai-shek was desperate to get his son back um, because Qingguo was thrown into the gulag and, you know, had all sorts of um, horrible experiences. And so Chiang Kai-shek wanted to get him back and he offered a deal to Stalin to exchange the Red Army's survival with the return of his son <clears throat> at a time when he could have wiped out the communist army and on the long march, you may have heard of this term, in the 1930s, he let them go. And as a result, his son returned. Now, after Chiang Kai-shek died in 1975, Qingguo succeeded his father and became the leader of Taiwan. It was he who set Taiwan on the road to democracy, which Taiwan is today. 
Okay, we'll skip that one. Okay, Ming Qingling, um, uh, Red Sister, on Tiananmen Gate with Mao on one side and President, uh, Prime Minister Zhou Wenlai to her right. And next to Zhou Wenlai is Deng Xiaoping, the post-Mao paramount leader. Now, this, picture, this is um, Qingling, they're the shortest one, supported by her staff at the memorial service for Mao in 1976. You may notice these gaps in the lineup. Um, and the reason is that, um, do you know the gang of four? Mao's wife and uh, three other assistants were arrested less than a month after Mao died and blamed for all the horrible things of the Cultural Revolution. When the memorial service took place, they were still the big leaders. But by the time the photograph was published, they'd already gone to prison. <laughs> and so the editors couldn't, uh, couldn't do anything about this, <laughs> except removing them, leaving these conspicuous gaps. Okay, you may wonder what uh, Elvis, Elvis is doing in the Three Sisters' life. And the, the lady he's holding is called Deborah Paget. She is the leading lady in Elvis's first, poem, first film, Love Me Tender. And uh, Elvis apparently proposed to her, and she turned down the king, but married one of Eileen's big sister's songs. Um, <clears throat> and uh, here it's, it's me <laughs> with, uh, with Deborah Paget and the Deborah's song with uh, Eileen's um, song, big sister's grandson, um, Gregory. Gregory is today the only descendant of the three sisters. And, and he is um, fiercely, he's not married, he's fiercely devoted to, her, to his mother and is not interested in keeping the legacy of the three sisters. And um, little sister Mayling aged 100. She lived to see three centuries, born in the 19th century and lived through the 20th century and died in 2003 after 9-11. Um, and she lived to see Taiwan becoming a democracy, which she initially resisted because she was, she was a woman who would face death um, without fear, but she couldn't stand discomfort. And she was addicted to a presidential lifestyle. She, <laughs> she had 37 servants when she was in New York um, and um, all, you know, shipped from Taiwan at a tremendous cost. And of course, um, and she was worried a democratic Taiwan might not provide her with this. Um, but in fact, although democratic Taiwan did stipulate rules about how the leaders, widows and so on um, should live, but they made an exception for her and in recognition of uh, what she had done um, for, you know, for Taiwan and uh, for, uh, as, as a first lady. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. That's <clears throat> Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you. Hmm.
thank you very much indeed, Young Chang. Um, mm. It was a pleasure for me. I got this sneak preview copy with no pictures. So I've now seen the pictures. Um, and if you um, uh, want to buy a copy of the book, it will be available afterwards and Young Chang will be signing. So look forward to that. Um, I've got a number of questions mm. I would like to have a chat with you about and then we will have a little bit of time at the end for one or two audience questions as well. Um, so uh, one thing that um, surprised me in the introduction, you said um, you were initially not keen at all to write this history. Mm. So what uh, put you off and what changed your mind? Yes. Well, you know, I, I grew up knowing about, hearing about these three sisters, hearing their names mainly. I mean, they, mm, I, and they were fairy tale figures mm. to me. And I, I just thought, you know, they married famous men um, and they lived a very privileged life. And there was nothing real about mm -hmm. them. Um, and so after the Empress Dowager, my biography of Empress Dowager in, uh, was published in 2013, I actually wanted to write about the Sun Yat-sen because Sun Yat-sen to me was this program setter mm -hmm. like Mao and Cixi. He was the man most responsible for China moving from the time of, of Empress Dowager Cixi who died in 1908 and who before her death had committed to turn China into a constitutional monarchy um, with a free press, elected government, elected the parliament and so on. How did China then 40 years later um, sank into this totalitarian abyss under Mao. And Sun Yat-sen was the man most responsible for this, for the development of the dead for decades. So I started to write about um, Sun Yat-sen. I gathered a lot of um, documents and so on. Then I, I sort of got bored with him. <laughs> Sorry, just going to get my, uh, my water. <laughs> Sorry. I got bored with him because he... He was, um, he was a bit like Mao, um, and um, he, he was um, a consummate political animal. He was single-mindedly um, pursuing his political goal at whatever cost. Um, but in the meantime, I realized that his wife and her sisters were actually far more interesting than he was. Mm -hmm. I mean, they, they, to me, they caught my imagination. So I, I, started, I started researching more and made them the main characters of the book. Sun Yat-sen is still important. The first chapter is about him. Um, but, but the three sisters are the, the people I'm most interested in. I'm delighted mm. you made that decision. Um, mm. I mean, they were extraordinarily talented women. That comes across in your book. Um, I, I think they would perhaps have held high office themselves in a different era. Is that fair to say? Yes. Yes. I mean, although, you know, the political culture in those days, and maybe in some, in some sense even today, favours people who are single-mindedly mm. pursuing power, who ambition, who had, the, had this ambition. And I would say none of the three sisters was like that. And Qingling rose to be Mao's vice chair. And one major reason, one of course, it was, he was, she is Madame Sun Yat-sen, this father of China. And the other thing is she was completely without ambition, mm -hmm. without ambition for her own 
office. Um, and so she formed no threat to Mao. And um, little sister Maiden is often said to be the one who loves power. And um, there is a cliche, I'm sure you know, you know, three sisters, one loves power, one loves money, and one loves her country or her people. Um, and little sister Maiden was said to be loving power. I mean, actually, I think she loves the frills that come with power rather than power itself. Um, so, and Big Sister Eileen certainly wasn't interested in political office, although she was the man, she was the woman who exercised the most influence on Chiang Kai-shek. Mm. Chiang Kai-shek called, called her big sister, listened to her most, um, but she never held official office. She was always behind the, the back. Um, and um, <clears throat> so, um, have I answered your question? Yes. I deviated Thank to you. the, yes, to, in other words, they weren't, um, they weren't driven mm. by the pursuit of power. Mm. <clears throat> but um, nonetheless influential. And oh. was that influence resented? You mentioned uh, an episode when one of the brothers was, um, there was an attempted assassination of him and mm. the attacker shouted down with the Song Dynasty. Mm. Um, and you also described the corruption that Eiling and her husband were uh, guilty of. So was there much resentment of these sisters and their family in um, Chinese politics? Yes, I think it's both. Both resentment, condemnation um, and admiration for mm. by other people. I mean, Eiling was no doubt very corrupt. I mean, the way she made herself one of the richest women in China during the war, when China was fighting a war, um, I mean, made her the target of many, many um, criticism, more than criticism attacks. Um, and she then developed a conviction that she was doing all this for God. And she was, the, the, the two sisters, big sisters and little sisters were deeply religious because of their parents' influence. And um, Eileen then um, felt that um, she, it was God's, she was doing God's mission um, to make money and to provide for her two illustrious sisters. Um, that's how she gained the kind of equilibrium in, in her mind. Extraordinary. Um, and you mentioned in your introduction um, that they were educated in the USA um, mm. and that... Um, uh, was also a, a way in which their Christianity was perhaps solidified, I don't know. But mm. um, they were very highly educated for women anywhere in the world, let alone in, in China. Um, can you talk a little bit about why their parents um, valued education so highly and why that was important for them? I think there was a, a lot to do with uh, Charlie's experience in the American South mm. and being with the Methodists. Um, he, of course, you know, he was a vic also, in a way, a victim um, of you know, the racial prejudices of, her of his time um, and, um, and had some unpleasant experience uh, in America. But on the whole, he was treated with great kindness. And so he wanted to make China more like America. Mm. And he wanted his children 
to be um, educated in America. And they could have, um, they, they just, um, um, and Eileen herself was extraordinarily, um, uh, and, you know, brilliant for when she was there, when she was a teenager, there was an essay she wrote in the archives of Wesleyan College in Malcolm, Georgia, where the three sisters went. Um, she wrote about Confucius, you know, this cultural icon in China. And she said, um, Confucius, is, Confucius generally is in many ways a good thing for China, but his biggest mistake was he despised women. And he, she said, as we know now, um, a country, a nation could not be really great without the emancipation of its women. Um, so, um, you know, she was pretty smart. <laughs> and But they were also at a time when China was going through tremendous changes. Empress Dowager Cixi, whose biography I wrote before this one, started women's liberation. First, she banned foot binding um, <clears throat> in 1902. And then she gave women equal educational opportunities. Um, and people were writing in 1903 in newspapers. I mean, she, the press, but there was... It, a new a free press was born during her time. And the people were saying that the 20th century um, will be the century of women's liberation. Mm -hmm. So they, when the by the time the sisters came back to China, and the last one, Little Sister Mei Ling, in 1917, I mean, the China they experienced were in drastic transformation, and their experiences were far from unique. Mm -hmm. Um, for example, you um, describe Mei Ling um, enjoying the high life in Shanghai mm. in the 1920s. Um, was she a trendsetter? Or, you know, was she sort of throwing herself into the fashion and um, <clears throat> nightlife of the city? How much did she engage in that? And that seems quite different from her sisters who lived more um, serious or austere lives. Yes. Well, I think she was She was just one of the Shanghai crowd. Mm. I think you, your subject is Shanghai. Yeah. You, you covered <laughs> Shanghai. It's an yeah. interesting subject. So you know more about the general picture than I do. But I know she wasn't. There was nothing that suggests that she was a train setter, okay. um, um, a, a train setter. Now, what, she wrote these extraordinary letters over many decades, from her school days to very near, much near her death, with this American friend, uh, Emma Mills. Um, and, um, and in these letters, she described in detail her, her life, including her life in Shanghai in the 1920s. And, um, and she spent a lot of time talking about her suitors I mean, into great detail. She was obviously very proud of her conquests. Mm -hmm. I mean, she had many, many suitors, and, um, and she mocked them. And, uh, <clears throat> and uh, she was, um, uh, it was great fun to read. And one man, and this was during the First World War, one man had written to her and said, um, Oh, I, I'm worried to death, you know, having not heard from you. So she wrote to Emma, um, now a war is going on, so many people are dying, so one more dead, surely it doesn't make a difference. <laughs> 
<laughs> and uh, but uh, they they led this extraordinary privileged life. But she, she was not happy um, because she wanted the fulfillment. She had boundless energy, and she wanted to do something. She was unsatisfied with um, um, with what the marriages she, she had seen. She was dissatisfied with um, uh, doing just doing charity because their parents were, were doing a lot of charities and with the church and she was involved in some she was dissatisfied she wanted somebody who could give her things to do that would make a difference and the big sister loved her little sister and was looking out for this man until she found Chiang Kai-shek and thought this was a man who would go far and um, and made the marriage well, let's talk about their marriages then, because despite them being amazing women in their own right, it was really their marriages that that uh, made them each. So you describe, um, in I think two of the three instances, sincere love on at least one side. Um, so Chingling certainly sincerely loved Sun Yat-sen. I'm not sure the same could be said the other way around. Um, I think Sun Yat-sen did fall in love right. with her. I mean, the, the surest sign was that um, he started to feel insecure. But he was a man who believed he was a savior of China. He was the greatest man. You know, he was a magnomaniac. Um, he was the greatest man, um, you know, ever, China would have ever. I mean, if you have been to China, if, or if you're going to China, if you go to Nanjing, that was the capital of the nationalist uh, government, you would see this gigantic Sun Yat-sen's mausoleum. I mean, Sun Yat-sen left detailed instructions of how to build his mausoleum. Basically, it was going to be grander and bigger in whatever way um, than any of the emperors in Chinese history. Um, in fact, I have a personal connection. When my mother suffered a miscarriage, um, I mean, I lost her child. Um, as a result of part of partly as a result of climbing this Sun Yat-sen mausoleum, it was so high. And um, anyway, that's um, now. But Sun Yat-sen, this magnomaniac, um, felt insecure because Qingling would tease him. Qingling knew, uh, could see this, would tease him. I mean, at one time, Sun Yat-sen's enemy was somebody called Yuan Shikai, who was the first president of China, who first elected president of China in 1913. And then he wanted to make himself an emperor in 1915, and he didn't succeed, had to abandon the project in 2016. And while he was trying to make himself the uh, emperor, Qingling said to Sun Yat-sen, she was leaving. Sun Yat-sen was in exile in Japan at this time. So she said, I'm going to leave Japan, I'm going to go to China, I'm going to marry Yuan Shikai and either be an empress or a concub imperial concubine. 
I mean, so Sun Yat-sen felt so anxious, he wrote to Qingling's father, Charlie, and asked him whether this was true. And, um, and of course, Charlie said, you know, how can you believe this? This is rubbish, you know. But Sun Yat-sen felt genuinely insecure. And, um, and I think that's a sure sign. He lost sleep when Qingling was away. He lost appetite for food. He was certainly not chasing other women. Um, and, um, but of course, it didn't prevent him from setting her up as a bait mm. and fully expecting her to be killed. Um, so such was, you know, the last for power would um, overshadow um, his um, love for this woman. Um, but yeah. it has to be said that since they were together, he never looked at other women um, which was a change for him. Um, was and that was a him. very dramatic episode that you um, uh, talk about in the book, the, um, when she was trying Her to protect estate. him and yes. uh, protect their homestead. Um, and little sister Mei Ling yeah. also had a very strong marriage. I mean, ups and downs, but quite incredible marriage with, with Chiang Kai-shek. She, several times, she wanted to leave Chiang Kai-shek. And when Chiang Kai-shek was leaving mainland China in the last days of the Civil War, she actually wasn't with him. She was in New York. That's where she wanted to be, to be. And also her elder sister, Eileen, was there. And she wasn't with Chiang Kai-shek when Chiang fled to Taiwan. And she didn't want to go to Taiwan. But then, of course, she was in torment because in those days, Taiwan was in serious trouble. America hadn't committed itself to defending Taiwan. That commitment came later with the Korean War when Mao helped North Korea invade the South, triggering off the Korean War. And this was before that. And America wanted to have nothing to do with Chiang Kai-shek because of the corruption and so on. And so, so Maiden was in torment, you know, to abandon her, your husband when in a crisis was bad form. Um, and also, she also didn't want to lend, give the communists a propaganda coup. So she was in torment, and uh, so she prayed at her sister's, elder sister's, Eileen's uh, um, uh, urge. She prayed for days and days, and she felt she heard God um, speaking to her, asking her, telling her to go and stand by her husband. So she went, um, uh, and uh, her return made a difference to Taiwan's morale and to Chiang Kai-shek, um, Chiang Kai-shek's um, love and whatever um, for her um, so um, it was a, it was she was she was quite amazing in that and from then on whenever Taiwan was in relative peace and stability she would go and live in New York and whenever Taiwan was in trouble when Mao was threatening to invade Taiwan and she would fly back to be with Taiwan so they did the couple, the Chiang couple, had about 30 villas in, in Taiwan. <laughs> because under Chiang Kai-shek, I mean, the communist invasion was a constant threat. So all the sea coasts were sealed off. Um, and the mountains were closed off to prevent, um, you know, spies, guerrillas, you know, whatever. And so they, were, they became exclus exclusive 
beauty spots for, for the Chang's. And they had these villas at the most beautiful places. If you go to Taiwan, make sure to make Chiang Kai-shek's tours, <laughs> your, 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 um, your sites, and they're really, really beautiful. And when this was discovered fairly recently, actually, a few years ago, and I noticed, I was in Taiwan, I noticed that people were not resentful. Um, people, in a way, forgave or forgive Chiang Kai-shek because he defended Taiwan. And they forgive um, little sister Mei-ling because she was also a kind of worthy, um, a good first lady, particularly compared to Madame Mao, the first lady on the mainland China who persecuted people and uh, caused many deaths. Yes, indeed. Um, let's talk briefly about how you research the book. Um, it's clear from the notes at the end how many archives you consulted in so many different countries. Um, you read, it seems, everything that was available. Um, but archives in China are quite difficult to access, uh, depending on the subject now. Um, was that an issue for you in researching this book at all? Well, that is an issue. But luckily, a lot, most of the material documents about the sisters, unless, of course, about Red Sister, mm. uh, Qingling, I'm sure there are archives which I have not been accessed, and I hope one of the scholars, your students, or someone would take this on as a project. Um, but most of the sisters' um, archives are in America, uh, in their colleges, Wesleyan and Wellesley College, um, and um, in American universities. Um, Chiang Kai-shek kept a diary for 57 years, and he wrote a diary every day. And this diary is incredibly personal, I mean, unusually personal, and with a lot about his wife, his feelings for his wife, and so on. Um, his disappointment at times, his anger at other times, their relationship. And that diary is at Hoover Institute in America. Um, and in, so there are a lot of things um, outside China, in Britain as well, in Hawaii, where actually, uh, where Sun Yat-sen went as a young man, also as, you know, as a poor immigrant, uh, a peasant immigrant. Um, but he attended school there. He actually picked up his idea of republicanism in Hawaii. Because once when he was there, Hawaii just became, in 1894, Hawaii had just become a republic. And with everybody talking about uh, republic, republicanism. And then he suddenly got this idea, China too could become a republic. And that's how he eventually became the father of China, a father of Republican China. So the materials everywhere, I mean, even in mainland, no, Taiwan, of course, is a democracy now and has opened its archives. Um, and uh, even in mainland China, a lot of their letters and, and other documents have been published um, during those years of open door policy mm -hmm. from the 1980s through the 1990s and so on. And also because my research about Mao, for example, um, and Empress Dowager overlap with the, the, this book, with mm -hmm. the Three Sisters. When I was researching Mao in the 1990s, I interviewed a lot of people who actually had a lot, lot to do with the Three Sisters. One was... Qingling, Red Sisters, 
deputy chief bodyguard. Because when I was in China, there was a rumor everybody knew, and people still talk about, talk about it today, that Qingling had an affair with her chief bodyguard, and they may even be married. So she was no longer Madame Sun Yat-sen. And uh, and I was very struck because in my days nobody can talk about could talk about the leaders their private lives were complete secrecy and only she was talked about. I now think the reason is um, because she was the only woman, and also because she was an independent spirit, and uh, she has. Um, I mean, they, so the regime, I mean, deliberately kept this thing that, uh, dangling over her head that she may no longer be Madame Sun Yat-sen because her survival depended on being Madame Sun Yat-sen. She lived through many purges, Stalin's purges in, in Russia when she was in exile in Russia and Mao's purges. She survived them all. Um, Main primarily because she was Madame Sun Yat-sen. So, sorry, long story. Now, back to the deputy chief bodyguard I interviewed. Um, in the 1990s, it was apparently, it was heaven as research, um, um, as a researcher. Uh, and um, the chief, the deputy chief bodyguard told me, of, of course, the real story. And he, I, I won't go into that, but it's in the book. It's quite interesting. And I interviewed, um, um, for example, Chiang Kai-shek's adopted son and this man, the young marshal, who launched a coup against Chiang Kai-shek and detained Chiang Kai-shek. And little sister Mei-ling went to the place Chiang Kai-shek was detained and basically rescued her husband. Mm. And, and she was very brave because everybody was against her going. Um, and, but she, she went, and she, she, at, before the plane landed, she gave her pistol to the man with her and said to shoot her if the soldiers you know, caught her, and um, um, anyway, so she was, she was sort of, she was brave. Mm. Well, um, let's open this up to the floor. We haven't got long, but um, if you could keep your questions very concise and ensure that they're oh. definitely questions and not comments, not interesting comments, um, that would be very helpful. I see an eager arm up over there. There's roving mics on their way to you, if you could wait for a moment. Thank you for a, a wonderful talk and for sharing some wonderful insights into Chinese history. Um, just looking to the future uh, of China, uh, could I ask you just your, your thoughts on that, and particularly in relation to what's been happening in Hong Kong uh, in recent times? Well, the future of China is extremely difficult to, to predict. I think it's absolutely impossible to predict. The main, the main reason is in the dictatorship like that, so much depends on one person. Um, and we don't know because I'm not, in, I don't know the inner the power struggles or the inner workings of the regime. Um, so I don't know who and the, you know who 
it's really harboring what thoughts and who would come up on top. I mean, as I said, you know, Sun Yat-sen made the difference. It was Sun Yat-sen who basically brought in the Soviet communism, which is why China is still communist today. Um, if any of Sun Yat's fellow Republicans had become the, the father of China, China would have been different. And Mao, in my research about Mao, if any of Mao's colleagues had been in power, China would not have had the Great Famine in which about 40 million people died of starvation and the Cultural Revolution. So the, I'm sure, I'm sorry, I just have to say, I really don't know. I'm, I'm interested in this as much as you do. Yeah. Hi, thank you. Thank you very much for your talk. Um, my question is about uh, Sung Qingling's drive and whether that is more to do with um, her, uh, her, how much she was um, committed to uh, Leninism and communism or was it more related to um, her hatred of Chiang Kai-shek when he, when he had uh, the man uh, she loved killed um, in 1931-1932. Mm, so where, was her drive more anti-nationalism or was it a commi uh, her committedness to Leninism, right. communism? Yeah, I think it's, um, I think probably it's both. I'm, I mean, it, it's both because before Chiang Kai-shek killed the man she loved, she was already very committed. She went, to, went into exile in Russia in 1927. Her whole family were against it. Her mother um, loved her very much. Was her, she was her mother's favorite. Her mother, I saw the letters. I mean, she, her mother had asked King, um, her to um, return and she wouldn't. And her mother family had disowned her. So that was before the killing. So I think she was already committed. And she was very heavily under the influence of the Soviet agents, who are very able um, people. Um, and then Chiang Kai-shek, she hated Chiang Kai-shek, not just also because of the murder, but also because Chiang Kai-shek had destroyed the Nationalist Party. She knew. The Nationalist Party um, was, a, was a Leninist party until 1927. And she was a core leader, leader of that party. I mean, there is a picture in my book, um, which is the leadership of the Nationalist Party. She was sitting right in the middle in the front, and Mao, Mao was in the national, Mao Zedong was in the Nationalist Party then, but he was standing at the back. You know, such was Red Sisters' status, and that it was her course as well. Um, and then, of course, the, the last um, straw was the murder of the man she loved. I think we could have one or two more questions. Um, so there's one at the, the far corner here, and I'm going to, while the roving mic's heading its way, I'm just going to say I was delighted by the previous question. I didn't realize when I picked that it was a former student of RM, Phil, Chinese studies at Trinity. So um, <laughs> nicely done there, Alex. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Yes. Um, thank you for being here with us uh, this lovely uh, afternoon. Uh, in my own personal uh, researches, I came across behind all this misery, what happened, uh, you know, Mao dictatorship <laughs> and the so-called cultural revolution. Uh, extermination of the, all the educated Chinese, 
uh, labor and the power, uh, let's say human power, human resources. I came across, I'm not anti-Semitic, but I came across Jewish autocracy behind. So in your searches, did you come across such a uh -huh. thing? No, I, 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 I never, um, uh, I've never come across uh, this. What well, there are these anti-Semitic uh, anti um, people saying what it would seem to me complete rubbish, mm -hmm. um, complete, you know, with no connection, far-fetched, and so on. More in the in the Russian on the Rush in Russia, I've not heard anyone in China who who talked about this. Um, actually, now the leaving us, I mean, you know, absolute. I would say absolute to rubbish is nothing to do with um, um with any of that, uh, I, I wrote the course of the Cultural Revolution in the biography of Mao. Um, but just going back to the sisters, Red Sister Qingling um, came to the end of her tether in the Cultural Revolution um, because her family, her entire family, and the Chang's and her mother's family, they were all suffering tremendously. A cousin came to her for help. She had been thrown out of her house. She'd been put on these denunciation meetings. She was coughing blood. She was beaten. And, you know, she was really in a bad way. And, um, but um, Red Sister didn't help her. I mean, she, she, she knew that if she stood up for her cousin, she would immediately be purged herself. And so this cousin then went across the road from her mansion to a building and uh, jumped from the top of the building to her death. And um, this actually haunted Red Sister, which is a sign that she feels guilty. Mm. And uh, she felt guilty, and in her letters, um, she said she was haunted by the death of the cousin. Or the, death, the cousin had written her and said, you know, just in the immediate family, she, per, people she knew personally, eight had committed suicide. Um, and um, and uh, so uh, Qingling Red Sister was haunted uh, by this, and uh, it, she came to denounce the Cultural Revolution. She came to as close as denouncing the Cultural Revolution in a private letter. Um, but of course, she didn't. And soon, not um, a few years later, Mao died and the Cultural Revolution ended and the Gang of Four were blamed. And then that gave her a convenient scapegoat. So her equilibrium about her faith was restored, and she collaborated with the communists until her last breath. Thank you. I think mm. we have one final question. Um, oh, the chat's already got the microphone, sorry mm -hmm. there. Um, yes, go ahead. Uh, when we think of people leaving China to study abroad, nowadays we think of women and men having an experience abroad that fits them <coughs> for any role at any level in Chinese economy or not possibly not politic politics, but in, in mm. to be movers and shakers in contemporary China. Would three women, even people from such a high family echelons as the Song sisters, mm. would they have had an education in America in the early part of the 19th century or the 20th century that would have prepared them for the extraordinary role they were expected to play in Chinese history? You mean whether the current, the women today, are able to 
know whether the Song sisters <coughs> at Wesleyan <coughs> College would received a kind of education that would have prepared them for the tasks that they were expected to, their roles they expected to have when they returned to China. Okay. Well, I, I, well they were, they, they, uh, judging from the, the documents, and they wrote intelligent essays. Um, I mean, they, were, they learned to debate, they learned to be interested in politics, and they had the, the knowledge about the world. But none of them studied politics. I mean, Little Sister mailing subject was, uh, was English literature, and uh, so is... Um, uh, Eileen and the, it, 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 they were not there to be prepared for political roles, especially. I think also in China, politics didn't work that way. I mean, it didn't work that you, you, if you're, you, you studied politics, you go into politics. It didn't, didn't work that way. And as I said, you know, the political culture was also, it's actually favors whoever who has the, the drive to be. And then actually Mayling made an interesting observation about Sun Yat-sen, the father of China. And she said to her friend, uh, Emma Mills, and I now realize and the greatness of man, words to the effect, yeah, is not dependent on, you know, how many great things he has done, but it's very much how he firmly believes in his greatness. Mm -hmm. And thus he hypnotizes other people into believing him. And I think that she was very smart. <laughs> she, was, um, she was in her early 20s, or not even. Yeah, she was, no, she was 20. And she, she made this very short remark, because that's exactly what Sun Yat-sen was. He was just believed he was, he believed his own greatness. And there were some S, the articles he wrote, which was utter rubbish. I mean, you know, I was I couldn't believe this. I mean, these all were all being preserved piously, I'm afraid, in Taiwan, um, as the Bible. But in fact, it's just the Sun Yat-sen theory or the Sun Yat-senism. Um, and uh, I mean, and, uh, diligently copied out by his doting wife and in before she before her heart went cold as a result of her experience uh, and um, anyway by the way her heart went cold when Sun Yat-sen was dying of cancer was in extreme agony she was completely oblivious I mean, in those letters she wrote to her girlfriends, she was very happy and as though she completely, she was completely separated from her husband and didn't know her husband's agony. And also their bed, his deathbed conversation with, with her and also shows the, the couple's relationship, which was riveting um, to me. Mm. <laughs> Sorry, yes. Thank so you. gone away from your subject. <laughs> Well, okay. thank you so much. We will have to draw the many threads of this discussion to a close there. But um, please join me in thanking uh, Yung Chang a last time um, for discussing her wonderful book with us this evening. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Dublin Festival of History, brought to you by Dublin City Council. You can find out more about the festival on dublinfestivalofhistory.ie and by following us on Twitter where we're at HistFest. <laughs>